Okay, uh, we are going to continue on in Second Corinthians. Um, again, I can't give you a huge recap over First Corinthians because I've got another tough uh, recap in Second Corinthians. So here's what I'll give you from First Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a mess, and Paul needed to fix it. The end. I mean, that's pretty much it. It was, it was a train wreck. Everything that you didn't want to go wrong with your church was going wrong with it, uh, and so he had to kind of help fix it. So last week. Uh, once you started into Second Corinthians, there's so much in here, so much that's applicable. I love this. Uh, but we're still calling it the Address the Mess series because it's still a mess. Now, Second Corinthians, as I said last week, you know, is one of the most personal letters that Paul wrote. It's also one of the most autobiographical letters that Paul wrote. And that's because that he put so much of himself into this church. He wanted this church to succeed. He helped establish it. He spent 14 or 15 months with them. And then... They're just not doing so well. I mean, they actually are going the other way very quickly. But before he wrote 2 Corinthians, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he decided he would go and visit them real quickly. Uh, and he stopped in there thinking, well, my first letter had to have some punch. Yeah, not so much. When he got there, it was a train wreck still, and they were still uh, questioning his apostleship and his message and his integrity, uh, his gospel. Uh, and they were questioning his integrity. This is goes to show you when somebody is not right, when something's not right, we get really picky, you know what I mean? Uh, and they had so many things going wrong, I think they were just taking it out on the Apostle Paul because they were mad at him for some of the dumbest stuff. I mean, they were mad at him because he changed when he was going to visit them. And get this, the other thing he was mad about was they changed the route he was going to take to come to visit them. I mean, I think someone was just having a really bad day if those two things make you mad. But those are the things that were making him question him. Uh, so he wrote this letter to defend himself and to open up about his struggles in ministry. Uh, and I think he did that just because he knew they were struggling and some of them had you know, been a partaker in that first letter and, and they realized things were wrong. And he just wanted them to know, you're not the only ones that struggle and suffer. We struggle also out here in ministry. Uh, ministry loves company. He wanted to let them know, listen, you're not alone in your struggle. Now, in today's message, uh, Paul's going to make a defense of his integrity and kind of defend his intentions. I titled the message... Um, character versus chaos, because when there's a disobedient believer, their life is, is chaotic, and it tends to make them, like I said earlier, judgmental and snippy, because when things are going wrong inside them, they're looking for someone to blame. So that chaos and often causes disobedience to challenge people who they see as obedient and see them as a threat. Okay, so that's as quick as I can catch up. Let's jump into 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world, and especially towards you. See, Paul knew about these accusations. One thing you got to realize, if you're, if you're bashing somebody, they know. I mean, it's going to get back to them, right? And Paul knew about these accusations. He knew that they were making accusations concerning his integrity and concerning his apostleship. He knew about that. But he doesn't make any apologies. That's one thing I love about the Apostle Paul. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't make any apologies for what he's done. Because he said, listen, my conscience is clear. I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what the accusations are. You can keep throwing them at me. I know my conscience is clear. Now, the word conscience comes from the Greek word sina deceive. And this word's really kind of cool because it means to be fully aware of and comfortable with your actions or beliefs. It means you're fully aware of and comfortable with your actions and your beliefs. And this is perfect word for Paul because Paul was completely aware of what he was doing and why, 
and he was completely comfortable with all the actions and all the decisions that he and the apostles had made in dealing uh, with the Corinthians. And so he's saying, my conscience is fine. I don't, I don't feel like I've done you wrong. See, Paul always tried to live fully surrendered to God. And you won't find, it's arguably, in my opinion, he's the most powerful apostle in the scriptures, but you won't find someone that is more obedient. I mean, when God said it, he did it. It was just that simple. He wanted to follow God's will and God's plan for his life. So the accusations and the attacks on his character, that stuff didn't faze him. I mean, a man who's been almost beat to death three or four times, you think sticks and stones are going to take him down, you know what I mean? These little words are saying didn't bother him once, not even a little bit. And that's why he said what he did at the end of the second part, uh, at the end of verse 12. Now he says, 2 Corinthians 1.12b, he says, We have depended on God's grace, not what? Not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world, you notice it says world, and especially toward you. Now, he was saying all that to kind of, you know, let him know, I'm always going to follow God's plan. If I make plans with you and God says do something else, as much as I love you, I'm going to do what God says. I mean, the first thing that has to come to his mind is, you know, oh, Jonah didn't work out too well, you know, by not doing what God tells him to do. So when he did have to change the plan, it was just because God told him to change that plan and he was going to follow God. So basically he was saying, listen, I would rather have my accusers mad at me and question my character than have God mad at me because I turned down his orders. You know what I mean? And that's what he was trying to tell him. He wasn't being a jerk. He was just saying, you know, given being mad at you, know, having you mad at me or having God mad at me, I'll take you. That's what he was saying. Because he knew that trying to please God is way easier than trying to please people. And I know you're probably thinking, what? But that is true. Trying to please God is so much easier than trying to please people. Because, you know, every person has a different opinion, a different take on things, and different beliefs, and different temperaments, and uh, I mean, they change like the wind. If you are trying to please other people, you will have a miserable life. Because it is impossible to please. If people say you can't please everybody, I don't know if we can really please anybody. You know what I mean? All the time. It's just about impossible to please people. And when believers start focusing on pleasing each other more than they focus on pleasing God, that's called religion. Okay, that's called religion. But trying to please God is called faith. That's what trying to please God is, and it's way easier than trying to put up please people because God never changes. I mean, you may struggle to meet some of the standards. We all do. But at least the standards don't change. You know what I mean? They're the same. You never change. So you know that if when you were 10 years old, God is the same God. Now when you're 40, like me, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, you know, he just knows that God never changes. It makes it so much easier. But... The problem, I think, with a lot of, of church today and, and with a lot of Christianity and Christendom, if you will, is that we are so worried about pleasing people within our Christian culture that we just become thinking religious. You know what I mean? We're so worried about what people think about us in the church that we forget what's more important is what do they think of us out there? That's what's more important. Are we making a positive impact on them? Listen, if Christians don't like what I'm doing, I don't really care as long as I'm still being effective for God. And that's basically what Paul was saying. As long as I'm effective for God, I'm not going to apologize that I changed a few plans and you guys are, you know, being all babies about it. That's my version. Okay. Now in verse 13 and 14, Paul reminded them that his letters were always honest and they were never, ever misleading. 2 Corinthians 6, look at 13, uh, 113. He said, Our letters have been straightforward and there is nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday you will fully understand.
So he wanted them to know, listen, if I offended you, if I, uh, if, if you felt like I deceived you, it certainly was not intentional because I have never, and nor have the apostles ever, intentionally misled or deceived you. Listen, we're given all we have for you. Why would we want to mislead you? You know? And notice he said it was his hope, it was his hope that the Corinthians would understand it. And by understand him, he meant that he wanted them to be on the same page someday. And he's saying, you know, we hope we can develop that relationship where you're on the same page as us. At least before the Lord comes back, we'd like to see us be on the same page. Because he wanted the Lord to come back and find them unified, right? So if you look at 2 Corinthians 1.14, he says, Then on the day when the Lord returns, you will be proud of us in the same way we are proud of you. Now, the word hope, we talk about this word a lot, but in verse 13 it's important. Uh, because the word hope used in verse 13 is not the same hope used in verse 10. Now, last week we talked about the word hope used in verse 10, and it's from the Greek word LP, right? And we realize that it means uh, a confidence that results from experience. So it's a confident expectation that results from experience. Okay, so that kind of hope is not, you know, anticipating, it's confidence, right? But the word hope used in verse 13 is a totally different Greek word, it's elpizo. And elpizo means kind of like what the English word for hope means. Kind of the same one we use today. I mean, it means that, I mean, you positively anticipate something, you're just not completely convinced it's going to happen. Kind of like our version of hope. So what Paul was saying is, I really hope I'm positively anticipating that maybe we can be on the same page, at least before the Lord comes back. But then you can hear in his writing, it's kind of like, I don't know that that's going to happen. But I hope that's what happens. That's what he's trying to say. Now let's move on to verse 15. It says, In this confidence I intended at, at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and uh, by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So he's still defending his integrity. He's still defending why he changed plans. And he was saying, Listen, let me explain why and what my intentions were behind changing my plans. Let me explain that to you. See, it was Paul's way of saying, listen, I wasn't trying to be dishonest. Let me tell you, let me explain about what happened. See, he changed his plans with good reason. So his integrity shouldn't be in question. He changed his plans because God asked him to. Right? He was, his original plans that made him so mad, and they're just being beautiful today. Um, he wanted to see them again on the way to Macedonia, and then when he left Macedonia, come back by and see them again. So they get to see him twice. I think it's kind of funny he said they'd get a double blessing. He didn't think much of himself there, did he? So she might receive twice the blessing, seeing me twice. You know? But that's what he was saying. He intended to come and see them twice. But God had other plans for him. And he had to follow God, no matter what. But in typical Corinthian fashion, right, they took something small and made it into something huge. They made a mountain out of a molehill, and it had nothing. It was, this shouldn't even have been an issue, right? They knew how difficult ministry was. They got to see it all around them, and especially how difficult it was for the Apostle Paul, who was like the Jesse James of ministry back then. I mean, they were all after him, right? They understood that they were going to be changes, right? But they just didn't, they wanted to make a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, they were blowing this up like it really was a big deal, and it really wasn't a big deal, right? It wasn't a big deal at all. See, believers in our time aren't a whole lot different than believers in Paul's time. We still tend to make too much of things. All right? You know, have you ever noticed that there's always some kind of controversy in your life, some kind of, you know, does anybody ever go home and just feel completely at peace anymore? You know, we tie ourselves to so many things. We always have worries. We always have bitterness. We always have anger. 
we make so much out of absolutely nothing. See, I always looked at the Corinthians as codependent divas. They had to be taken care of. They had to be put up on a pedestal. They had to be babied and watched out for. They were codependent divas, and when they didn't get their way, they started talking bad about people, right? And it, to be honest with you, nothing's really changed. We do the same thing. A lot of times when things don't go our way, we blow up. Even if it's not even that big of a deal, we blow up like it's such a huge deal. And usually when we don't get our way, we make something small into something huge at someone else's expense, right? Let's be honest. You kind of look for a target when you're mad, don't you? And when you're mad, does anybody want, guys, let me ask you, does anybody want to walk in the kitchen when their wife is mad? If you heard your wife throwing stuff and saying stuff in the kitchen and mad, do you go in there? You don't. I don't. Not that I'm afraid. Okay, I'm afraid. I'm not going in there, right? That's just the way that works, right? But we know that when we are not getting our way, we get grumbling. We kind of become codependent divas too. We start talking about everybody else's problems and we're having... You can always tell if somebody's life has issues in it because they're always talking about everybody else's issues if they have issues in their life. They're usually doing that so that if they can make a mountain out of a molehill about Michelle's life, maybe they won't look into my life. So I'm just watching her like a hawk to this very day for things she does wrong. No, but that we are looking for things people do wrong so that maybe if I point out enough of what they're doing wrong, you won't look at me. This is the same thing. Think of all the bad things that was going on in Corinth. So wasn't it a little easier when he's trying to correct him, saying, oh yeah, well you didn't keep your promise. You're supposed to see a spice you didn't. That's so stupid. But that's what they were mad about. And here's the thing. What we forget as believers is that we are all on the same team, no matter what religion or what denomination rather we call ourselves. We're all on the same team. Okay, all of us are. And instead of talking bad about the people who are struggling in their life, how about we encourage them and try to restore them from their struggle? Because we're only as strong as our weakest, our weakest link, just like a chain. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Right? And here's how it works. Um, if we allow people to struggle without any help, it means there's one less soldier on the battlefield that's prepared for battle. And it makes it worse on everybody. Right? On everybody. It, it's struggling. When Has anybody ever, kind of like a lineman in the NFL, if they miss a block, the quarterback just gets tanked. You know what I mean? Especially blindside. They don't even see him coming. That happens when we uh, allow people to stay in their struggles and gossip about them rather than helping them. We're allowing them to remain weak. And they hinder those who would be affected if we allow them to remain weak. It's like, have you ever been witnessing to somebody and talking to somebody trying to lead them to the Lord? And all of a sudden they go, doesn't so-and-so go to your church? Like, mm, yeah. like, well, you know what they said? You know what? They cussed me out. You know what they did? They got mad and they did this. And all of a sudden, it's like the lineman missed his lock. I'm trying to talk to him about Jesus, and I just got sad. Because someone allowed uh, another believer to struggle instead of helping. But that's kind of what Paul was dealing with uh, here. Now, in verses 17 and 18, Paul addressed the accusation that he was a flip-flopper. They actually were calling him the equivalent of a flip-flopper. The Apostle Paul, the guy you don't want to ask if your butt looks big in these pants too, because he'll tell you, you know what I mean? He's as straight as it gets, and they're calling him a flip-flopper, all right? Look at this, verses 17 and 18. He says, you may be asking why I changed my plans. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I am like people of this world and say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not 
waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one uh, whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he, has, he always does what he says. Verse 20, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends uh, to God for his glory. Now, Paul basically was saying, I can't believe you guys actually think I just make crazy decisions without actually first planning. You guys make it sound like I just willy-nilly changed my plans because I you know, saw that there was a sale at Sonic and I wanted to go to another cheeseburger. I mean, that's, they made it sound like it was no big deal. He just changed his plans. He's saying, don't you realize that I take, it, I take serious consideration of what God wants me to do before I change the plan? He said, I'm not like the people of the world. We talk out of both sides of their mouth, basically, what he's saying. And by people of the world, he meant unbelievers or carnally-minded people. Because the people of the world will say anything they have to to benefit them in the moment. Anybody ever notice that? They'll say anything they have to to benefit them in the moment. And he said, that's not been us. That, you know, he said, we have done nothing but be honest with you. We have tried to, to teach you like Jesus taught us, and he taught us truth and honesty because he is truth and honesty. Right? And, and Jesus was very direct. Sometimes, I think, we over-spiritualize everything. Okay, when Jesus was on earth, he was loving and kind, but he was direct, and he would tell you. He would tell you, especially uh, anything that could help you. He would tell you. He wasn't worried about being politically correct. He wasn't worried about being looked at, looked at as cultured, which is an absolute poison in Christianity today. Too many pastors want to be looked at as rock stars. You know, I mean, same thing. It's all throughout Christianity right now. People are so worried about, I don't want to say anything that will offend, you know, the politically correct. I could care less what they think, right? And that's the way we're supposed to think. We are supposed to be direct. If the politically correct wrong, tell them the truth so maybe they have a chance. You know what I mean? That's the way Jesus was. He was honest and loving, but he would tell you the truth even when it hurt. I could cite so many examples, but I'm only going to cite one. Look at Matthew 23, 27. There was a ton here. I had to pick how to cut this down. He says, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. He's coming out of the gate and he's gentle. Right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's about as direct as it gets, right there. Okay, verse 28. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Sound politically correct? It's coming straight to him. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets and adorn the mountains of, or the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partnered with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Well, that was gentle. You see what I mean? And people go, well, why would he be that direct? Listen, these were, these were Jews who knew the truth and were rejecting it for personal gain. He's saying, what do I have to lose here? You know, I'm just going to call them out and tell them, you're hypocrites, and if you don't stop, you're going to go to hell. Would anybody dream of saying that today? You know what I mean? But that's it's what they needed to hear. Now, don't get me wrong. He was patient and kind and loving until they gave him a reason not to be. Like when he was dealing with people who were hard-hearted or hindering others from believing. When he had to tell them the truth, he didn't hold back. He told them exactly. He wasn't 
trying to offend him. He wasn't trying to hurt their feelings. He was trying to guide him away from the world and closer to God. So believers, when you hold back honesty from people, when you hold back honesty from people for the sake of being politically correct or because you're worried about offending them, you're actually helping the enemy destroy them. Let me explain. Let me explain. Um, here's the thing. If you're holding back and not keeping someone accountable, you're hurting them. Okay? If you see a believer that's doing something that you know could hinder their relationship with God, but I don't want to be, I don't want to offend them, offend them. They need to know. Because if you really love them, you want to stop them from what's coming. Listen, if you see a kid riding a bicycle and there's a hole they don't see and they're going to ride into it, do you warn them about the hole or do you say, well, I don't want to offend them? You warn them so they don't ride into the hole, right? Listen, when someone's not living right and you see it and you know that you can help them, but you're worried about offending them, offend them is better than letting them run into the hole. It's a lot better than that. And if you see unbelievers who are living lives that will pull them away from God, tell them. Now, don't be a jerk about it, but tell them, listen, I'm, I'm worried about you. This isn't what God has for you, right? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, stick up for people who, who are rude and, and, and try to hurt people's feelings. There's a lot of believers out there who are rude and belligerent and condescending and demeaning of others, okay? We like to call those believers jerks. That's what we like to call them. Because believers are commanded to do everything they do out of love. Okay, in our elder meeting the other day, I said, I want to make sure that whatever we do, we do it from, a, the, from you know, love and unity. Because you can't build on anything else. Believers, you can't build on anything else. If you're one of those people that's nasty and demeaning and condescending, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being honest. You're required to be loving. In Ephesians 4.15, it says that seeking the truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. When we speak with a negative attitude, we're not being like, like Christ. But when we allow someone to walk into danger and don't warn them, we're helping the enemy. It's that simple. We're helping the enemy. I would rather be considered not politically correct, and I would rather be considered insulting than I would be considered a spectator who watches a brother or sister in Christ go down the street. I'll do whatever I have to do to make sure that doesn't happen. I could speak on that for hours. I'm move on. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God. Now in verse 21, Paul revealed why changing the plans is the right thing to do. Okay, first he said, he was reminding them, my schedule is under God's control. My schedule is under God's control, not my own. Okay, that's how ministry works, right? I'm under his control. The word establishes is from the Greek word debayo, and debayo means to confirm, verify, or enable someone, Right? And Paul was saying that God enabled him and the apostles and anyone who had a desire to serve, to serve because they were listening and following God's guidance. That's why. Any servant who wants to be successful in ministry has to do it God's way. You know all these big scandals you see in churches all over the place? The media is all too happy to tell you about them. You know what I mean? When you see those scandals and stuff like that, that generally tells me that comes from people who are not allowing God to enable their ministry. They were following their own way. That's what that tells me, is they are following their, their own way. Because if you try to do something that you're not called to do, it's going to fail. And in my opinion, a, a pastor who's starting a church trying to make money selling prayer cloths is doomed to fail. You know why? Because they're not allowing God to lead them. That's, all, that, that's what that is. They're not allowing God to lead them. Now, he also reminded them that it was, it was Jesus who told him to do what he was doing. Right? They were mad because he was following God's guidance. He said, this is what I was anointed 
to do. The word anointed is from the Greek word creo, and it means assign, appoint, or commission. He's saying, I will do what I'm appointed to do, no matter what. I wish so bad that believers today would be focused on what they're appointed to do and get away from all the stuff we're not. You know why we're so judgmental? You know why the world doesn't like us? Because we've been too judgmental, we've been too self-righteous, and the truth be known, if we would just love them like Jesus loved us, these doors would be full of people every weekend, crowding through those doors, right? We are commissioned to love people like Christ loved them and tell them the truth about the gospel. That's what we're here to do. And I feel like we've lost our way. I feel like churches have lost their way. I feel like pastors have lost their way. It's not about starting the big club that everybody, you know, has a secret handshake. You know, it's about bringing people to Christ. That's why we're here. I wish people were like the Apostle Paul who were willing to say, listen, yeah, I wanted to come. I can't. You know why? Because I'm following God. If you're mad at me for following God, suck it up. That's what he was saying. I, I wish we had that attitude still. Now, in verse 22, uh, Paul used one of the most powerful pieces of imagery in Scripture. I've been dying to get to this. 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. He said, Who also sealed us, who also what? Sealed us and gave us the Spirit, capital S, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a, as a pledge. Now, God identifies all believers by placing the Holy Spirit inside of them. Okay? And this is a brilliant illustration because he said sealed as a pledge. The word sealed is from the Greek word sprogeza. Okay? And it means to place a literal seal on something, usually hot wax stamp at that time. It was a hot wax stamp. In the Roman government, if something was sealed by the government, if there was a seal, and anyone but who that was given to opened it, it was a big deal. Big deal. You never opened what someone else sealed unless you were permitted to do so. In Paul's day, I mean, if, there, if a document was sealed from one party to another, it was illegal for anybody else to open it. That identified it as being the property of the one who sealed it. That's what that meant. It was a crime to do any otherwise. The Holy Spirit was God's way of sealing us. He put the Holy Spirit in everyone who believes. The moment you believe, the Holy Spirit moves inside you. And when it moves inside you, that is God's stamp. That is Him stamping His approval on you through the Holy Spirit. And He's making a pledge through that stamp. And a pledge comes from the Greek word, arabon. And arabon means the first installment. When he said he gave us the Holy Spirit as a stamp to seal us, and he gave us the first installment, a pledge. You know what that? It's just like we use the word earnest money, right? It's kind of the same thing. He was saying the Holy Spirit is just a down payment. God's coming to pay you out of layaway. Let's put it that way, all right? He's coming to get you. You're his. He's identified you as his, and he has pledged to come and pick up what belongs to him. I love that because when people say you can lose your salvation, I'm like, where do you get that? I don't understand. Where do you get that? What would make Christianity special if you could lose your salvation? You know what I mean? I don't know about you guys, but if it was about being good, I'm doomed. I mean, maybe you guys can be sinless. I cannot. I literally would be saved about 13 seconds if it was about what I do. You know what I mean? I, I'm thankful. I don't know about you. I'm thankful I'm sealed. I'm thankful that God has made a pledge to me. Because if it were about me, I'd miss that Uber. You know what I mean? I'd be in trouble. So, I mean, I, just, I don't know, understand why people even want to chase that rabbit. But Paul was just saying this to remind him, listen, I'm not out here doing this for kicks. I'm doing this to follow God. I'm doing this to follow God. And I'm sorry that you're being divas, but I'm not going to come over there and cry about it with you. 
Because you know what? There are people out there who want to hear what I have to say, and I'm going to share that with them. I'll get there when God tells you to get there. That's what he was telling them. And then he ends this, verse 23 and 24, uh, by reminding them that he didn't return for a good reason again. He keeps beating us to death. Verse 23, Now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. Okay? Now the truth is coming out a little deeper. He says, But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. Listen, God had other plans and Paul was going to do that no matter what. But there was another reason that Paul didn't come. And I believe God ordained it. When he stopped after writing 1 Corinthians, they were still a train wreck. And you know, I think God was going, I don't think now's the best time to go, Paul. I don't think you should go back there anymore. So basically what Paul is saying is, you should be thankful that I'm not coming back there right now. Because I remember what I saw, and by me not coming back there, I'm not going to chew your butt. But if I come back there, it's not going to be a joyous visit. It's going to be me chewing on you for once again being rebellious and stupid. So I'm sending this letter with hopes that the next time I come, something will change. You don't want me there right now. You ever have your parents say, don't, you don't make me get up. Well, better not. Anybody ever say that? Their parents say that? Don't make me, don't make me pull this car over. Anybody ever hear that? Anybody have a parent that could slap you without looking over the back of the seat like that? My dad. Right? Listen, this is what Paul's saying. You should be thankful because if I could, I'd slap you over the seat. That's what he's saying. If I could, I'd pull this car over, young man. That's what he's saying. Right? And he's, I thought it was kind of funny because that is like real honest. Now, we're going to go into chapter 2, just four verses, and we'll finish up there. But um, he wanted to let them know that it's not fun, it's not pleasant having to chew people. That's not pleasant. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting verse 1. He says, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. Well, that hurts. He's saying, I decided not to come because it was going to be painful, basically. Right? Verse 2. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Uh, certainly not someone I have grieved. He's basically saying, I'm not going to be happy, and no one that I've made mad is going to make me happy. Right? Verse 3. That is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote you the letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. So what are you saying is, I know I've been direct in this letter. I know I've, I know I seemed a little angry. I might have seemed a little snippy in this letter. But he's like, understand something. It doesn't make me happy to have to discipline you. The very people I should be getting joy from, from their benefit of success in the, in the faith, those people are the ones that are bringing you grief. He said, it's not fun having to come and yell at you all the time. Anybody who has to uh, lead, any leader who has to discipline their subordinates, unless they're a, some weirdo, they don't like it. Nobody, how many people we have been in management? Raise your hand. How many people love it when you have to shoot somebody out or fire on I just had to see if just one. Nobody. It stinks to have to discipline your subordinates. But good leaders do what's necessary to ensure that their subordinates succeed. And that means following the rules. And so if they don't follow the rules, they'll discipline them. And Paul was an amazing leader. Paul was saying, I would rather you be mad at me and talk behind my back like you're doing right now and get back on track 
then love me and stay in the mess that you're in because you are in a mess. That's what he was telling me. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up there next week because there's way too much for me to move on. So I'm going to ask you would please bow your heads. If this is your first time, you're always given invitations. And I know this has been one of those messages where it's been more about Paul chewing on somebody. But God works works through his word. He always has. And if there's someone that would like me to pray for him, I don't, maybe you're not, not sure where you stand, but there's people. Just make eye contact and you put your head right back down. But there's people. And I will pray for you. I don't need to know why, but I will be praying. That's just people. That's just people. Listen, if you're a believer and you're here, I'm going to pray for you. Because every time I turn the TV on, I think, where are the believers? What a mess. We need people willing to stand up and follow God's plan like Paul did. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and mercy and your grace. I thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't hold us to a standard we couldn't meet. You didn't make us become perfect. We just had to believe in the one who was. Anyone who believes that what Jesus did was enough, you guaranteed them eternal life. Please, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, and if whatever's holding them back, just move it out of their mind. Let them focus on the love that took your son to the cross. Let them realize that if they can trust what he did, it is enough. And you will guarantee them eternal life. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. But for those of us who are believers, God, I, it's so easy to be a Sunday Christian. It's so easy to only think about you in church, to only think about you when we're doing a devotion. God, we want you to be the number one thing on our mind, our number one priority all the time. Light a fire in our hearts and bring us back to where we need to be. Because someday the only thing that's going to matter is the relationship we have with you. We just pray that as we leave here, you'll keep us safe. Let us hope that we profess. And if you don't intend to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory.